I don't know if it's a guy thing, it's just my personality, but anytime I'm taking a road trip, there's one thing I'm concerned about right up front, and that's ETA. How long is it going to take me to get there? And I don't know, I'm even competitive about it. Now that I have a Navi system in my car, you know, I love, I'll enter the destination in and the ETA will show up. And to be honest with you, because you shouldn't lie in church, shouldn't lie anywhere, but especially shouldn't lie in church. I usually fudge a little bit on the speed limit, and I love watching that ETA number tick down, you know, and I'm, I'm making good time. I love that. Um, the only thing is, there are a couple of orange signs on the road that can change my ETA. We'll talk about one of them next week, but one of those is that orange sign that says detour. Now, I don't like detours because detours tell me two things. Number one, detours tell me it's going to take longer to get there than I thought, and my ETA is going to change. Second one is the big one, though. A detour tells me right up front that I'm going to be on a less than ideal road, because if it was the ideal road, it wouldn't be a detour. So as soon as I see that detour sign, I, I grip my teeth because it's going to take me longer, and I'm not going to be on the ideal road. Now, you and I know that this series is not about getting in your car and taking a trip. We're having a little fun with that, and we got a, you know, a styrofoam Corvette on stage. But as much fun as that is, you understand that we're talking about your life being a trip. We're talking about your life being a journey, a road trip. And we're, we're specifically exploring the life of a guy named Abraham in the Bible and following his life because it is as if God invites him on a lifelong journey. And we're looking at aspects of his life and we're drawing, we're drawing obviously, some comparisons between that and, and a road trip. And so when I think about a detour, I'm thinking about in life, I'm thinking about the times in life where circumstances and situations come along where our dreams or whatever we presume is God's will for us is delayed or maybe even taken off the table and we're in less than ideal circumstances. All of us know what that's like to be just, you know, moving right down the road of life, going full speed, when all of a sudden we find ourselves in a less than ideal situation. Now, I've learned in life there are two kinds of detours as it, as it applies to road trips. There is the detour that is created by the highway department. It is a prescribed detour. It is a managed detour. It has an orange sign, and it has a particular road to be on, and it communicates the promise of some point getting me back on the main road. There is the highway department's detours, and then there are those detours that I create myself. And most of those begin with this expression, I know a shortcut, or I know a better route. And I have gotten on some of those, both in road trips, and I've certainly gotten on some of those in life. Now, here's the main difference I've discovered about detours in life. You know, obviously, when I'm talking about the highway department, I'm talking about sometimes God will put us on a detour. And here's how you can recognize a God detour. None of your choices contributed to the detour. It's not, there's no, you, can't, you can't draw a straight line between any of your actions and your circumstances. You didn't ask for it. You didn't do anything to occasion it. It's just that suddenly your life puts you on a different road, and it seems to be less than ideal. Second aspect of recognizing a God detour is you find yourself saying something like this. I don't see how this could possibly be good for me. I don't see how this possibly could be God's will for my life. But I've noticed there's a big difference, a huge difference between a God detour and one that I create myself. And, and I want to just read a statement that I, I wrote. Uh, before I do that, though, let me say this. The thing about a, a highway department detour is, is at least there's usually a purpose. With God, there's always a purpose. You know, like I say, usually a purpose. A few times I've been on detours and wondered what it was all about. I was driving to, Oklahoma, uh, driving to Texas the other day. 
And I'm, you know, I'm from the Dallas-Fort Worth area. I've been here 28, almost 29 years now. So I cannot tell you how many times I've made the trip between Wichita and Fort Worth. Hundreds of times, probably. And many times I've said to God, God in your sovereignty, why didn't you just put Kansas on top of Texas and move Oklahoma out of the way? Because it would just really shorten the journey. But I, know, I guess the Lord felt that we needed an Oklahoma. So I was going through southern Oklahoma and, and all of a sudden, and then I looked, and there wasn't a detour on the other lane, but we were, we were doing fine, too, and making excellent time. When suddenly I looked up, and there was the orange detour sign, and we had to get off Highway 35, and we started going through the back country. And, folks, I saw towns in Oklahoma I'd never seen before. I think I saw towns nobody has ever seen before <laughs> on that detour. And I was gritting my teeth all the way about that. Why do we have to do this, you know? And Mary Alice got on her iPhone and, and Googled it or checked it out, and it determined that, you know, there was a toxic chemical spill in my lane, and the highway department knew what was best for us. So it is with God's detours. We may not understand in the moment why we're on what seems to be the less than ideal road. Here's what I want to read to you that I wrote verbatim. When you go on a God detour, whatever discomfort you have will melt away. There really was no delay, and actually God put you on the main road for you. That's what's good about God's detours. When you finally understand the purpose, and for some of us, maybe some things will require us even getting to heaven, but when you finally understand the purpose, you'll see that there was a reason. The pain and the comfort will melt away as you embrace that reason. There really isn't a delay and you'll discover that God put you on the main road. And I have a lot of stories in my life, and I won't bore you with them. But I'm guessing that some of you have a few stories. Because there was a moment where God took you in a different direction, maybe in regard to education. Maybe you couldn't get into that particular class you need to get into to get the degree to go into the field that you were going to go into. But you got into another field, and you've discovered that that was your purpose in life. That is a cool thing about God's detours. My detours, on the other hand, whenever I get off the road of following God and kind of chase after my own stuff, I've noticed four characteristics that are universal about my detours. The first one is I'm slowed down from God's best. Sometimes God's best gets taken off the table. I'm slowed down from God's best. There's always pain and discomfort. I discover that I make a mess and I acquire a whole new set of baggage. Those four things happen in my detours. I want to go over those again. I get slowed down from God's best. I create pain and discomfort. I make a mess. And I acquire all kinds of new baggage. Now, someday we'll talk about God's detours. We'll save that for a different day. But we're going to talk about the detours that you and I create. And we're going to look at the life of Abraham because Abraham is a guy who continued to take detours. And uh, let me just say this. In, in, in the essence of full disclosure, and for those of you who are church people, you may have to just unscrew the halos for a few moments and lay them down. But could I just tell you that failure is part of the Christian life? And when I mention failure, I'm not talking about trying your best and failing. I'm talking about deliberately getting on the wrong road. It's not God's will for us, but we're flawed people trying to follow a perfect God. And our flaws are going to show up. Isn't it true? If you look, and for those of you who do follow Christ, as you look back on your past, isn't it true that you've taken some detours? And I will tell you this, if you live long enough, you'll take some more. And please, I'm not giving you permission to sin, not that I could. Refer to the four things that happen. But I am just telling you this. Detours are going to be part of our lives because we're flawed people. So given that reality, we need to ask two questions. How can I avoid taking detours? And what do I do when I take a detour? Could I say something, one more thing before we get started here on Abraham? 
you have a God who loves you. You also have an enemy who hates you, and he knows what it takes to lure you off the road. What lures me off the road of following God may be different from what lures you off the road. And he, you look at his history. He appealed to Eve through the insecurity that God wasn't telling her the whole truth. He appealed to David with a naked next-door neighbor. He appealed to Noah by telling him that a little liquor might liven up his boredom. He appealed to Lot by telling him he could make more money in Sodom. So he knows what it takes to lure you and me off the road. If you were here last week, I told you what Abraham's problem was. Abraham had a problem. Abraham had an Achilles hill. He had a weakness that left him vulnerable to detours. It's interesting because Abraham's weakness was sort of tucked away in his strength. It was almost as if, let me ask you a question. Have you ever had a product or a piece of software that had a glitch in it and it would run just fine until that glitch showed up and then it would freeze or crash? The Bible calls Abraham a man of faith. That's in the book of Galatians. He is called the man of faith. If you grew up in church like I did, many of us grew up identifying Abraham as the father of faith. What's going to be weird to notice is that Abraham's weakness is a faith issue. He has a glitch in his program. And his particular problem is personal security. He worries that he's going to be okay. And here's the thing that I find interesting because it happens to be my problem too. Don't think that Abraham is a coward. Abraham's not sitting around thinking something bad is going to happen to me. As long as there's a frontal attack, Abraham does fine. As long as he's in a situation where he can sort of take control of things, he does great. For instance, we're not going to have time to cover this particular story, but his nephew Lot moves to Sodom. And there was a five-king coalition, five-king army that attacked Sodom, the cities of the plain. They took all the people overcame those cities, took Lot and his family and his daughters and all his possessions. And Abraham rounded up 300 shepherds. They strapped on swords, chased down that five-king coalition, beat them, got the stuff back and came back. So he's not, Abraham is not fearful as long as it's a frontal attack. It, let me say it this way. Abraham is not afraid of the known quantity. His issue is he's afraid of the unknown quantity. I love talking to leaders because so many of you are leaders in so many different ways. Leaders have strengths, but leaders also have an issue. See, the thing about leaders is we're strong because we want, we, we want to do great things, but our weakness is sometimes we want to be in control. And leaders have control issues. I didn't say that leaders are controlling people. Most of the time when we use that moniker, controlling person, we're trying to say that a person leverages their advantage in order to get something personal out of it. A lot of leaders are BCFs. They are benevolent control freaks. They want to be in control not so that they can gain some personal advantage out of it. They want to be in control so that they can just keep, every, keep the trains running on time. They can want to be in control to help other people. And that's sort of the kind of person, if you want to use control issues being Abraham's situation, that's the kind of person he was. He doesn't seem to be controlling for his own self. In fact, he's not a selfish person. He fears the unknown in a situation when he's out of control. Well, let's watch how it works. I want to show you Abraham's first detour. This is in Genesis 12, verse 10. Now there's a famine in the land, and Abraham went down to Egypt, which he shouldn't have done. He should have just stayed where God put him. Abraham went down to Egypt to live there for a while, and he said to his wife, Sarah, 
I know what a beautiful woman you are. So far, so good, right? Guys, that's a good thing to say. That is good. I know what a beautiful woman you are, but it would have been a great place to just put a period and just stop the conversation. <laughs> when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. They will kill me. He's now worried about personal security because he's in a situation and doesn't know what's going to happen. They will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister so that I will be treated well. And ladies, have men changed him 4,000 years? Look at this. <laughs> Babe, I'm doing this for you. <laughs> Read it with me. Say you're my sister, so I'll be treated well for your sake. It's, all, it's just for you, honey. It's not for me. <laughs> and my life will be spared because of you. Now, they're going down to Egypt. He shouldn't be there. He's sort of like taking a detour now, gotten out of God's will. And he says to Sarah, listen, I'm going to get down there, and, and Abraham's scared he's going to be out of control in that situation. So he wants to find something to kind of get back in control. And he says, say you are my sister. Do they still... I don't know if kids still play this game in school. They probably, it's probably against the rules. Did y'all ever play rock, paper, scissors? Rock, paper, scissors. Now, for those of you who don't know, that's sort of a game that, you know, you play. And, and, and there's a sort of principle that goes with it. If I get it right, it's been a lot of years since I was in elementary school. It's like, was it paper covers rock, scissors cut paper, rock breaks scissors? Is that what it is? Okay. Well, here's the thing. Abraham's kind of got a rock, paper, scissors thing going on because, you know, here's the thing. For all of us who are benevolent control freaks, you can control things, but life will come along and show that it can beat you. And thankfully, only God can beat everything. And so Abraham is going to get into a situation, try to get into control, but suddenly he's not going to have any control at all. We read, when palace officials saw her, they sang her praises to Pharaoh, their king, and Sarai was taken into his palace. Then Pharaoh gave Abram many gifts because of her, sheep, goats, cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. And I mean, I just look at this and think, how Goofy did Abraham feel. His wife is being trundled off into Pharaoh's harem, and Pharaoh has given him sheep and goats. And I mean, he's like standing there. And we want him to say, excuse me, just a moment. I need to clarify something. She's really my wife. But he didn't. He just stood there, and now he's surrounded by a zoo. <laughs> you know, there's nothing more pathetic than seeing a control freak out of control. Well, thankfully, as I said, God controls everything. In verse 17 of chapter 12, the Lord sent terrible plagues upon Pharaoh and his household because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So Pharaoh summoned Abraham and accused him sharply. What have you done to me? He demanded. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister and allow me to take her as my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and get out of here. Oh, poor Abraham. He's having to take a lecture on ethics from a pagan. Here's Pharaoh having to explain to Abram how he should live his life. How embarrassing. Well, we've sort of analyzed detour number one. We know how he got there. There was a glitch in his faith. And his glitch was he was afraid that if he was out of control, he wouldn't be able to be secure. So he's learned his lesson. Let's go now to detour number two. This is eight chapters later. And much later, he moved on. By the way, can I just say one thing about Sarah before we go any further? Uh, Age-adjusted, because people lived longer back then. Age-adjusted, Sarah would have been, when they went to Egypt, between about 40 and 45. Now, ladies, just being honest here, 
if you can stand out like that, and I'm sure there was a whole bevy of 18 to 25-year-olds in Egypt. If you can stand out like that at 40 to 45, you are by definition a hottie. And so that, <laughs> that's what Abraham is married to. Okay, let's move to Gerar now. Detour number two. Abraham's learned his lesson. While living there as a foreigner, Abraham introduced his wife Sarah by saying, She is my sister. So King Abimelech of Gerar sent for Sarah. Stop me if you've heard this before. So King Abimelech of Gerar sent for Sarah and had her brought into his palace. Now, when I tackled detour number two, my first question was, Why did he lie and say Sarah was his sister? Now I have a whole different question. The question I want to know now is, Why do we do the same stupid stuff? You, guys, when I get ready for a message, you need to understand something. I don't go in with preconceived notions and look for proof texts. I approach the Bible like a detective. I approach a story like this with questions. Because every time I open the Bible and I read it, it fills me with questions. I want to know, what were people thinking when they did this? And why did they do what they did? So I look at this, and I look at Abraham making the same dumb mistake. And I want to know, why do, why do people do the same dumb things? And then I change my question to, why do I do the same dumb thing over and over again? And when I asked the text the questions, I, 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 question, I wrote down three answers. And when I looked at it, I thought, this is brilliant. Because I learned why we do the same dumb things over and over again. Two answers quickly. We're going to talk a little bit, and I'll give you the third and the big one, Okay. Here's the first reason why we do the same dumb things over and over again. There's a weakness in us that doesn't go away. I'm talking to a lot of you who followed Christ for a good while now. And you followed Christ long enough that you've won some victories over problems in your life. But you know what? Your weakness doesn't go away. You may overcome it, but your weakness is still there. I have a friend who's been sober for 30 years, and he says this to me. He said, you know, Mark, God took the liquor away from me, but he didn't take the taste away. He said, I've been, you know, been sober for 30 years, but I can be sitting on an airplane and drink can pass under my nose. And he said, the, the desire, the taste is still there. I've wrestled with anxieties all my life, and I've grown some in wrestling with them, but I, the predisposition is always there. I'm just telling you that until, until you see Christ and until God changes us completely in heaven, there's always going to be probably some, some predominant weakness in our lives. The Bible talks about it in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips, the sin that so easily trips us up. I want to talk real straight to some of you here today. You've been following Christ for a while. Some of you have done the same thing so many times that you've actually begun to wonder if you can really be a Christian. You found yourself asking God to forgive you for the same thing so many times. You're saying to yourself, I can't be a Christian. Surely, if Jesus has changed me, I wouldn't do the same thing over and over. I've asked God to forgive me for this 500 times. Surely, I can't be a Christian. And yet God knew you had that problem or else he wouldn't have talked about the sin that so easily trips you up. Abraham made the same mistake. He got into the same problem because he had a weakness. It was years later, but he still had the weakness. The second reason is the moment passed. I'm sure that when Pharaoh was reaming him out, Abraham was saying to himself, this will never happen to me again. I will never let this happen again. Haven't we been like that? You know, when you're going through... Uh, the 
difficulty and the pain of the detour and your dreams are getting delayed and, and you're making a mess and you, you got baggage, you know, enough years can pass and that pain can be forgotten and the mess kind of got cleaned up and, you know, you move on and you can forget the pain of the moment. And next thing you know, here you are again. I'm talking to some of you. And, you know, it hasn't been long since you were in the throes of a hangover and you woke up hugging the toilet and you said, this has never happened to me again. But a few weeks later, the hangover's passed. Your friend said, let's go out. The moment passed. But now I want to give you the third reason and the big one, but I want you to see it coming before we get there, okay? Let's read the story. This is in Genesis 20, verse 3. That night, Sarah now is in Abimelech's harem. That night, God came to Abimelech in a dream and told him, you're a dead man. That's a bad thing to hear from God at 3 o'clock in the morning. God said, you're a dead man. Well, that woman you've taken is already married. But Abimelech had not slept with her yet. And he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Didn't Abraham tell me she's my sister? And she herself said, yes, he's my brother. I acted in complete innocence. My hands are clean. And God said, I know you're innocent. That's why I kept you from sinning against me and why I didn't let you touch her. Now return the woman to her husband. He will pray for you, for he's a prophet. Then you'll live. But if you don't return her to him, you can be sure that you and all your people will die. Now, if Abraham thought he got a chewing out from Pharaoh, he's going to really get a chewing out from Abimelech because Abimelech's going to pull back both hammers and pull both triggers simultaneously. In chapter 20, verse 9, Abimelech said, no one should ever do what you've done. Whatever possessed you to do such a thing? This is a wonderful opportunity for Abraham to put his hand over his mouth and shut up apologize, and quietly get out of Gerar. But Abraham passes up a marvelous opportunity to be quiet. And he starts talking. And the more he talks, the more we wish he would just shut up. Because he says, I thought, and he's explaining to Abimelech why he did it, I thought this is a godless place. Well, I mean, after all... Hasn't Abimelech been praying and talking to God? And God said, Abimelech, I know you're innocent. And God and Abimelech having this conversation. If I'm Abimelech right now, I'm saying, you thought this was a godless place. Which one of us do you think is acting godless? And Abraham said, well, they will want my wife and kill me to get her. And she really is my sister. I really didn't lie. I just told a half lie. Um, for we both have the same dad and different mothers. And I married her. Now, a moment ago, I, I promised you I'd share with you why we do the same dumb things. I said, first of all, we have a weakness that doesn't go away. Secondly, we forget the moment. Here is the big one. Genesis 20, 13. Abraham said, when God called me to leave my father's home and to travel from place to place, I told her, do me a favor. Wherever we go, tell the people I'm your brother. This goes right back to the very beginning. Abraham was worried that this situation would come up. And he said to Sarah, whenever we get in this situation, this is what we're to do. New Spring, are you ready for this? Abraham failed because he gave himself permission to fail. It's too late to fight the battle of temptation when you get in the moment of temptation. Before we ever get there, when we think about our weakness, we either give ourselves permission to fail or we give ourselves determination that we're not going to fail. I want to show you the opposite by contradistinction. In Daniel chapter 1, Daniel is taken away into captivity. And he goes into captivity to the Babylonians. Now, in verse 7, it says they changed Daniel's name. The chief of the staff called him Belteshazzar. That was a horrific thing for a young Jewish boy because that was a name after a, an idol god. But church, you can't help what people call you. 
And Daniel didn't protest that because he couldn't help what they said about him. But it says in verse 8, but Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. In other words, Daniel knew this moment was coming up, and he determined ahead of time that when that moment came, he was not going to give in. I am convinced that you and I give in to temptation because we've given ourselves permission to do it. We have said to ourselves that when the pressure becomes intense enough, we give ourselves permission to cut a corner on our personal values or on what we know God has to say. Or like Daniel, we decide that when the time comes, we, no matter what it costs, no matter what it feels like, we're not going to do the wrong thing. Well, I'm almost out of time now, and i got to get to the third detour. And since time is short, I'm going to have to let you sort of pull the lessons out of this. But this is the big detour of Abraham's life. And many of you who know Abraham's story, you will know about this. God has promised Abraham and Sarah that they would have a son of their own. God has handpicked Abraham to be the father of many nations. But now years have passed, and they are childless. And they're struggling with, on one hand, the promise of God, and yet their own inability to conceive. Well, one thing you're going to see, folks, is that men and women haven't changed much in three or 4,000 years. Okay, let's read this together. Sarah said to Abraham, the Lord has prevented me from having children. Go and sleep with my servant. Maybe I can have children through her. And Abraham agreed. Now, it's a difficult thing when people are unable to conceive today. And it's painful. And today people want a child and they're unable to have a child. But back in the day, it was even more complicated than that because not only did they have to deal with not having a child, they also had to deal with the fact that not knowing what we know about genetics and gynecology and and biology today, they assumed that it was the woman's inability to conceive. And so a woman who could not have a baby was dealing not only with the pain of not being able to have a child, but with the stigma of something being wrong with her, uh, her being a failure as a person. And that's very unfortunate. And so Sarah was going through a particular moment of depression. And she said one statement to Abraham that had two halves. The first half was, she says, God has prevented me from having a child. Go sleep with my servant. Now, guys, let me ask you a question. How many of you have heard your wife make a statement that had two halves and you listened to the wrong half? Because Abraham should have listened to the first half of that statement. Because when she said, God has prevented me from having a child, Abraham should have gone to her and comforted her and said, babe, it isn't just you. We're in this together. God has made us a promise. He will keep his word. And you and I, are, we're, we're going to go, whatever we go through, we're going to go through together. And that moment would have passed and everything would have been fine. But when she said a statement that had two parts, God has prevented me from having children. Go sleep with my servant. All Abraham heard was the second half of that statement, which said, go sleep with my servant. And so he did it. And you look in Genesis 16, it says, Abraham had sexual relations with Hagar, and she became pregnant. But when Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to treat her mistress Sarah with contempt. Then Sarah said to Abraham, this is all your fault. I know the Bible is the word of God. Sarah said to Abraham, this is all your fault. I put my servant into your arms, but now that she's pregnant, she treats me with contempt. The Lord will show you who's wrong, you or me. Now, there's 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 some things that were 
said between verses 5 and 6, but they can't be translated out of Hebrew into English. And so I want to try to tell you now what Abraham said between verses 5 and 6. It was like this. You can't get that into English. Actually, it's the same in every language, isn't it, ladies? Abraham said, she's your servant. It's not my problem. You deal with her as you see fit. Now, you know, the rest of the story was, was a real, real tough thing. And it was a real detour. And even today, that detour continues to have ramifications. Ishmael, the son that Abraham had by Hagar, is the federal head of all Arab peoples. And Isaac, the son they had later, is the head of the Jewish nation. And for thousands of years, there's been tension, geopolitical tensions that go back to the decisions of a dysfunctional family and a God follower who kept taking detours. Remember my, what I told you what happens when I take a detour? I'm slowed down from God's pest. It causes pain and discomfort. I leave a mess, and I'm saddled down with baggage. Well, I need to finish this message. So what have we learned? What are the lessons that you and I are going to walk away with here and learn about detours. I'm not even sure the first one is a lesson. Maybe it's just a response. The first response I have to Abraham's detours is I just want to shrug and say, why? It makes no sense. I don't understand. I mean, if Abraham, when, when God had called Abraham to leave Ur, if Abraham had said, God, I'm not interested in following you. I want to do what I want to do. Then we wouldn't be surprised at any of this behavior. But Abraham does so many good things. He does so many brave and courageous things. And then all of a sudden he just screws up. And you and I are left to wonder, why would he do such a thing? You ever notice, if you've got a friend who's a God follower, Have you ever noticed a friend of yours take a detour? Doesn't it leave you scratching your head? Don't you find yourself thinking, what was she thinking? What was he thinking? I mean, if you look at Abraham's situation, a lot of times people who aren't even God followers see a Christ follower take a detour. Even God followers are wondering, what are they thinking? Hey, church, never forget this. People who aren't God followers, they know what you should believe and they know how you should live. You guys know I've shared with you, I've done a lot of events with non-theists and I really enjoy it, and I'm even at Wichita State. And, and, uh, and people are always asking me a question about my interaction with, with the atheists and agnostics. And people always say, well, Mark, do they try to convert you? And I've got to tell you this, all my atheist friends, all my agnostic friends, not a single one has ever tried to convert me. I'm, I believe deep down inside, they want me to believe what I believe. Because in case they ever decide to change, they'll know who to talk to. I, but they want me to believe. And they know what I should believe. And they know how I should live. See, when, people, other, when other people take their detours, it doesn't make any sense. They're acting out of character, we say. I got a good friend who was here at New Spring, and he's been on a detour for several years, and for some reason, I dreamed about him this week. I don't usually have many dreams, but I dreamed about him, and in my dream, I was sharing scripture with him, begging him to come back. I don't know. Maybe it's a coincidence. Maybe God is just prompting me to talk to him again. Maybe he's running out of time. I don't know. 
I don't understand. The weird thing is, though, when I make a detour, take a detour, it makes great sense to me. Isn't it true? Isn't it strange? Our detours don't, our detours make sense. Other people's detours don't make sense. And so the first question that I'm left to wonder with is why? Two questions that come to mind right now that are very practical for you and me. Can I ask you a question? Since our detours make sense to us, and it doesn't make sense to other people, number one, what precautions are you going to take right now in the area of your weakness to keep yourself from taking a detour? I know what my weakness is, and I know the precautions I need to take, and I work on them every day. But here's a bigger one even. Who is in your life who truly follows God, who has permission to confront you if she or he sees you taking a wrong step. There are people in my life whom I have not only given permission, I have charged them with the responsibility. If you see my foot get one inch out of the path, you are charged with the responsibility of confronting me instantly. And see, that's important because our detours make sense to us. And we need somebody that will say, that doesn't make any sense. You're acting out of character. All right, second lesson real quick. What do you do when you get off the road? Well, when you're traveling down the wrong road, you're discovered you're going the wrong direction, what do you do? You turn around, take the, tur- the nearest turn around, and you take the straightest route back to the road where you need to be. I could be talking to somebody here today, and, and here's the thing. The expression to watch is this one. Well, I might as well. I've already come this far. I might as well go the rest of the way. I mean, you're, you know, I've got an emotional affair going, so we just might as well take it all the way. No, you might as well not. You take the quickest turnaround. You get back on the road. You say, well, I, you know, I used to like really be close to God, read my Bible every day, but now my life is a train wreck, and so I guess I just might as well become a hellraiser. No, you might as well not. Get, a, get the closest turnaround, get back on the road. Why? Because you have a merciful God. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, the Bible says, if we confess our sins. Now, this is a big statement right here. What does it mean to confess our sins? Well, confess comes from two Greek words that are jammed together. Homo, H-O-M-O, which means the same. Lego or legais, which means I speak or to speak. So it means to speak the same thing. So when I confess my sins to God, I say the same thing about my sins that God says. I don't say God is a disorder. I don't say God, you know, I don't have any euphemism. I did it because I didn't get a, you know, a bicycle when I was five. I, I'm just saying, God, I did wrong. If you lust, tell God you lusted. If you lied, tell God you lied. If you coveted or were jealous, tell God. Because the Bible says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to not only forgive us, but to purify us and cleanse us, clean up the mess that we've made. Isaiah chapter 118, God says, come now and let us reason together. God never says come tomorrow. Some of you are on a a relationship detour, and you're hooked up with somebody It's a detour. And you're saying, you know, it's not good right now. Maybe in six weeks or six months, I may end this relationship. No, God says, come now. God never says, come tomorrow. There's never an offer on the table about tomorrow, only an offer on the table for now. Come now, God says, and let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they'll be white as wool. I want to close with one that I want you to be very careful with. But it's true. The third lesson that I pull away from this is God 
as great as he is, can even redeem detours. Now, the reason why I'm cautious with that is it could be that somebody's here thinking, wow, I can go ahead and take this detour and God will redeem it. Refer to the four bad things that can happen. But I will say this, for those of you who've taken some detours in life, God is so amazing. Our God can even take the broken foolishness of our detours and turn around and redeem them. I didn't know this until yesterday. As many years as I've taught and preached about Abraham, I never realized this until yesterday. Do you know how many books of the Bible, if you're holding a Bible in your lap, you know how many books of the Bible mention Abraham? 25. Now we're in the book of Genesis because it's the, it's the contemporaneous record of Abraham's life. But Abraham is going to be mentioned in 24 other books. Prophets are going to talk about him. Kings are going to talk about him. Jesus is going to talk about him. The New Testament writers are going to talk a lot about Abraham. Do you realize in the next 24 books that all talk about Abraham, never once is his failure ever brought up again. There's no asterisk by Abraham's name when he's called a man of faith. And down below, you see all the screw-ups. In the next 24 books, nobody ever says anything negative about Abraham. I got to wondering about David. Our next series is the series of the year. It's called The Thing, and it's about David. And I got to wondering about David. Look at the awful things that David did. And yet David is mentioned many times after that, and never again is his sin ever brought up. Only the good things. And I thought, is God trying to tell us something? Is he trying to say to us, if you'll bring your sin up to him, he'll never bring it up to you again? I've, been, I've got so excited about that, I pulled up Hebrews chapter 11. I challenge you to go home. Look at the heroes of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Boy, there are some people with some baggage. I mean, there's Rahab the harlot. And there's Gideon, whose faith was weak. There's Jephthah, who made the awful vow. There's Barak, the man whom God called to lead an army. And he said, I won't go unless Judge Deborah goes. And God said, all right, but I'll give the credit to a woman. And Barak said, that's fine. I mean, you, you, you look, and there's Samson for crying out loud. He had an appetite for Philistine women. How many things did Samson screw up? And yet there he is in the hall of fame of faith, and all God remembers about him is the good that he did. All I'm saying to you is if you're a God follower, get back on the road. Stay on the road if you're on it. Get back on the road if you're off it because you have a God who loves you and you have a God. If you will bring your sins up to him, he will never bring them up to you again. I'm glad you're here. Thanks for being here for this weekend. Next week we tackle under construction. See you next week. God bless.